Welcome to the Women's Leadership Network podcast series. This series was created as a means to encourage, inspire, and empower women who want to make their lives better. Just stay in your own lane. People are going to be speeding past you, going around you, but just, you know, focus on doing what you want to do. I knew that this would give me opportunities that I would never get again in my life. And so staying true to yourself, despite what your peers are doing, is tough, but worth it. We look for current issues and challenges facing women in the legal world and offer ways of tackling these issues, as well as provide a community of support and engagement. I'm Jeannie Forrest, co-chair of the Women's Leadership Network. I have two guests today, Nani Anyekwili and Alicia Bereni, both 2016 graduates of the law school and now fellows at the Policing Project. This is a project that works to strengthen democratic governance and community engagement around policing. Hot topic, huh, ladies? I expect Nani and Alicia will be able to tell us more about everything. It's my pleasure to welcome you both to the conversation today to discuss experiences as recent graduates and working in male-dominated environments. Because this podcast is oriented around women, I'd like to start with this. What was your experience as law students, particularly as women? Who wants to go first? Sure, I'll go first. So in terms of as law students, um, I took four years off actually before coming to law school. And so I feel like that really colored my law school experience. I had really strong female mentors in my previous job. I was a paralegal for the Department of Justice. I worked for some badass female litigators. And so coming to law school, I had had, you know, those mentors who were supporting me and I was looking for that when I came to law school and also prepared to treat law school like a job. So I had gotten a lot of advice to, you know, it's a nine to seven job, you know, don't work, don't stay up late, keep your regular social life. So I tried to do all of that. And then throughout law school, I think just keeping in touch with, again, all of those mentors and knowing how important they were helped me look for those people at NYU and not just women, but people who I knew that would really advocate for me and be able to help me with really important career decision making. And that carried through to my summer internships. And so I think for me, it's it's been this experience has been about trying to find people who will be in my corner. And I don't know if that's particularly important to me because I'm a woman or just because I'm a young professional and trying to succeed in this industry? I'm an old professional and I still think it's important. (laughs) Um, I think similar to Alicia, while I didn't take um, four years off, I had a lot of strong women figures in my life before I came to law school. And I don't think I actually thought about being a woman as a detriment in any way in law school until I started, you know, hearing more about our need for work-life balance and our need for all these things that made us different. And so I think in some ways, I didn't really come into law school expecting to be treated differently because I was a woman. But then as I spent time here, I realized that as I enter this new world after law school, being a woman is going to really impact my life. And so that was kind of what a lot of my law school experience was learning what it means to be a woman and how it might affect me in the future. Okay, that calls into question something for me. So you said you didn't really think about it that much until you came to law school and people started talking about it. So I wonder this sometimes, if we mention this, if we even bring it into the conversation, does it make it worse? For me, it didn't make it worse. It, you know, it further expanded my ideas of the world and different experiences. And my my mother and my grandparents, they were very, it was very woman focused. My, the mothers of those families led the families. So I never thought about being a woman as being, you know, 
not empowered or disenfranchised. And I didn't do, I didn't, I wasn't very aware of women's history before law school, to be honest. And I've learned a lot more in the past few years. And I'm, I understand why it's, it's a serious issue. But I would say that maybe talking about it more made it more of a child, more of an issue. But then you also just saw dynamics in the classroom, how women talked, talked a little less. But then I also had classmates who talked a ton who were women. So, you know, there's, there's um, examples to counter each narrative. And I'll add to what Nani said. I think that I agree. I, I never really thought about being a woman was going to be essential to my identity as a lawyer. But I think that there are statistics to back up. I mean, there's more women than men that go to law school now. But then when you look at you know t- top firms, I think the classes are about equal for starting lawyers. But then you look as time goes on, and by the time you get to senior associates or partners, the percentage of women is much, much less. So I think being at NYU Law or being at law school and, and having these narratives and conversations come up more in some ways than I thought they would, it's for me, it's about holding two realities that are like true at the same time. One is that right now, I don't feel that being a woman is affecting my ability for advancement or my opportunities. But understanding that there are these realities and trying to figure out, trying to be really cognizant of seeing where there might be places in the future where there are two paths, you know, either imposed out from someone else or for myself, and I'm going to have to make decisions. It's so interesting because when you talk about work-life balance, Nani, that that comes up in ground conversations around women. And then you mentioned, Alicia, this idea that you're going to have to make decisions. I sometimes am not joking, um, but it sounds like I'm joking. We don't, we have law women, but we don't have law men. So it does seem like these issues are presented more to us. And we do seem to be, as women, more aware of the tension that you're describing. My hope is that that over time goes away in the sense that, you know, it's just announced that Facebook is giving paid leave, not just to men and women for fam- for um, having kids, but to anyone that needs to take family leave for bereavement or other family challenges they might be facing. So I think over time, the hope is that culturally taking care of your family is a universal concern. It's not a female only concern. I think right now it's still framed, unfortunately, as a female concern. And that's not where I am in my life right now. So it's about trying to figure out how does this issue impact me today? And if it doesn't, then I don't, you know, then I don't want to spend my time wringing my hands about something that's not true for me today, but still be cognizant. Maybe it will be true for me in the future. Yeah. And I, I don't think there should be a law men necessarily, but I know some law firms have a working parents group rather than, and they also have, you know, all the different groups they have, like the women of the love of firm groups. So you know, I think maybe at those firms, I would hope that the challenges that come with the stereotypical work-life balance conversations are had in the working parents group, whereas um, the law women group at a law firm is focused on other challenges that are you know unique to women. So I think I agree with Alicia on that point. So switching gears just a little bit, you were the first policing project fellows. So first of all, tell us a little bit about the policing project, what it is, what your roles are in it. Yeah, so as you mentioned in the beginning, the policing project promotes democratic accountability for police departments. That's a lot of words that don't necessarily mean a lot in isolation. So what that means in practicality is that the policing project sees 
the way policing is treated as fundamentally different from every other part of government. So every other part of government, there are rules, they're written up front, they're written up front usually with public input, and then they're publicly available. And where possible, there's cost-benefit analysis done to make sure the rule does more good than harm. Uh, in the policing world, a lot of policing is done, you know, policing policy is made, you know, without public input, and there are historical reasons for that. But the idea is that for most of what the some things police do need to be secret. If they're creating crime-fighting strategies, you know, yeah, that needs to be done with their expertise behind closed doors. But there are a lot of things that the public can and should be involved in because policing is something that affects people so much on a day-to-day -day basis in their lives. So... What the policing project does is work with departments to affirmatively try to get them to solicit public input into their policies. So we work in a variety of cities and do that in a variety of ways. We work with community advisory boards, so boards of citizens that help departments get community input up front. Does this mean that you're actually in St. Louis and talking to the police department there? I work in Tampa, Florida, and in Camden, New Jersey. So yes, I work for the police department and work consultants to police departments in most places. Uh, Nani has a slightly different role where she's working in Cleveland, but I'm working with the police department and communities to try to bring the two together and help them do proactive policymaking. So not incident-driven, not this was, there was a bad incident where there was a police use of force, and we're going to now look at that incident and what went wrong. That's not what the policing project is focused. We call that back-end accountability, so it's done after something's already gone wrong. We're trying to prevent things from going wrong up front, so you're strengthening the bonds between the police and the community by having the community actively involved in setting the priorities for their own department. And I'm working in Cleveland, and in Cleveland, the city of Cleveland is under a consent decree. So um, the Department of Justice and the city of Cleveland have a settlement agreement in place, and there's a federal monitor overseeing that agreement. So I work with him to um, solicit community engagement around all the various policies that the Cleveland Division of Police has to revise or draft. And so one thing that I'm working on is, um, or I worked on actually in the past, the use of force policies. Um, use of force was a major issue in Cleveland. Um, there's some national matters that occurred there. And the division drafted a new policy. And so we worked with the community to solicit input around that policy to make sure that it addressed some of their challenges. And there's also a huge education portion of that, which wasn't necessarily intended, but it was a, a side effect because people were learning what this new policy is now. Most people didn't even know what the old use of force policy said, whether they couldn't find it or maybe it wasn't even publicly available. So we held forums, we had community meetings where people could actually look at the policy and provide in input. And I mean, there were a lot of really fascinating things we found out. One really cool thing that a community member said was there's a huge language barrier with the Hispanic residents and officers who don't speak Spanish. And one person suggested it would be great if officers had a little note card like in their back pocket that they had like common Spanish phrases. And that doesn't have to be a whole like rule in the police book. But it's definitely a policy that the department could adopt to, you know, provide for better relations. How in the heck did you get involved with policing? I mean, I think about policing as something that's very unique. It's in the national news. We're taping this interaction. Those kinds of conversations are happening everywhere. But not for nothing. You're in this incredibly male-dominated world. Policing is politically rife with all kinds of trouble. 
What was the motivation for you to get involved with this in the first place? The first reason I wanted to get involved was, you know, just being a lawyer. I care about justice. I care about the law. I care about, you know, things seeming fair to some extent. And um, then I took criminal procedure and I learned that everything you would think was appropriate was just ruled differently in court. You know, officers were, you know, somewhat allowed to racial profile as long as you were breaking a law. It seems like if you're driving a car, you can be breaking a law at any time. Just kind of felt like all the, as I learned more, and obviously, you know, living in the world that we live in, I saw that the law was really stacked, you know, against citizens. And I realized that the law probably wasn't the best way to solve this issue. And it was probably more important to look at this from a policy level versus, you know, looking at did the officer break the law here? And if not, then everything's fine. And, you know, usually everything's fine for the officer. And also, you know, it's important to, you know, keep communities safe for not trying to let out bad guys. So as I after that experience in CrimPro, I was working, I learned about Professor Barry Friedman's new initiative, The Policing Project, and as I learned more about it, I loved the idea of, you know, joining communities and police to work together to think about how the policies could reflect community expectations. Alicia? I think for me, when I heard about, again, it was a new organization when Nani and I first joined as interns and we were still law students, and... For me, I think there's different theories of social change and just my personality and what I believe in is changing from the changing from the inside, not the outside. So it really appealed to me that the policing project was going to try to affect change in the policing space by working with police departments and not being combative or against police departments. And I think trying to walk that line of working with communities and police and bringing those two you know, groups together that in some places have had a lot of issues is so important and and because we have the buy-in from police departments, we can do it in really unique ways that no other organization in the country is doing. So the opportunity was so unique. Um, I'm passionate about the criminal justice system, but this this way, this approach of social change really appealed to me, and, and I really connected to it. It sounds so holistic. I love the idea that here you are, newly minted lawyers, and you're saying the law isn't the only answer, that the law can't stand alone in this particular case. It has to be this gestalt, really, of the community and the police that sounds like a long history of policing and the law and policy. I always feel uncomfortable as a middle-aged white woman talking about race. Um, I always feel just a little uneasy about it. But the intersection of race and gender, uh, very unaddressed, very often just because of those exact kind of fears. So I'm going to be brave and um, it seems like, especially in the context of policing, can you talk a little bit about the confluence of those massive events, or is that too too gigantic of a question? No, I think it's easy to talk about to some extent. Um, I know as a as a black woman, I know for me it's important to you know be very upfront when you have these conversations about how there is a disproportionate impact on people of color. So it would be deserving to have a conversation with officers or even community members and ignore that fact and pretend like it's objective or it's a coincidence. Um, there's a long history going back to slavery on why things are the way they are. So um, for me, I always like to, you know, put the elephant out in the middle of the room immediately and, you know, not let people just talk around it. So that's something and that makes it easier to, to speak my viewpoint. Um, definitely when you talk about, you know, 
policing with police officers, you know, nobody wants to be told that they have a prejudice or they're biased or they're even racist. Well, definitely not racist. And, you know, it's it's you have to play a fine line of, you know, just realizing that and reminding people that they're not themselves, you know, racist or prejudiced. They are functioning in a systematically prejudiced society. And it's not about their actions it's what they're it's just what they're told to do and we know where they're deployed and how many officers are there and what schools they're going to and so I think it's important to recognize that race is a, is a huge part of policing conversations but also to not let it you know only focus on the past yeah and and as a white woman I think this experience has taught me exactly what Nani said I found that maybe I shied away from also wanting to introduce these issues or, you know, was trying to kind of skirt around them in certain ways when I first started. But I try to confront them head on and talking openly about, again, disparate impact or, you know, policing is so much bound up in struggles of people of color. And there's no reason to not acknowledge that reality. But at the same time, not say that, oh, because there's this terrible history, there's no way forward, there's no room for improvement. It's like we have a system and it's not quite working, but we can try to start moving it in a place where people are interacting with that system in a way that is better and more just. Yeah, I think one other thing is race is also a part of it, but also just being young and being a woman and being a lawyer. You know, I, I find myself going to going into spaces like introducing myself very early on as a lawyer or as part of this team so that you know, people don't put me in a bucket that I don't want to be in um, from the beginning. So I, I feel like in some ways that's, you know, being in a space that sees African-Americans one way usually and being young and looking younger than most people my age and being a woman. It is I, I find that I end up, you know, introducing myself early on as to my position and my role and give out my card and, you know, make myself seem very important from the get go. That's a funny point, Nani. I hadn't thought about it that way, but in this job, definitely, I think my experience being younger and being a woman, I'm so happy to have a lawyer credential because even though I don't necessarily, I'm not doing a traditional legal job in a lot of ways, I agree. When you come into a situation, you say you're a lawyer, I've seen the respect that I get when I walk into a room, despite being a young woman. I might be walking into a room of police officers, I might be walking into a room of older community members, and that credential gives me an air of legitimacy that I would have never anticipated. And I've been lucky. I don't think it has done, you know, you could see maybe it would do the reverse. Oh, people are scared to talk to you or intimidated or skeptical of you. But I found it really only has empowered me in situations. I don't think it's been a detraction in any way. Yeah, and also I'd like to add that, you know, in a lot of the communities that Alicia and I are working with, there have been policing problems for so many years. There have been, there have been many groups who've tried to come in and fix them. There are people who are in the community, people outside of the community. So in some ways, when you ask an officer or a community member to tell their story again about what happened, it's not so great, but, you know, having that lawyer credential makes somebody feel like they're telling it to somebody who's a little bit more important, which, you know, that's not the goal, but they feel a little bit more heard and they feel like maybe what they're saying will, you know, have an impact or get back to the right people. And that, you know, allows people to be maybe more candid at times and be more open. It gives you an air of authority. Yes, you're right. Exactly. When you're, um, you know, such a, I'm, not, I'm sorry, but policing seems like a very male dominated community. It totally is it? Is. 
It, it is. I mean, there are definitely amazing female officers that we work with, but overall, definitely more, more male-dominated. I mean, I've been working with the Cleveland Division of Police for the past, uh, I mean, since August, and there's the deputy chief is a woman, and other than her, I haven't really seen women officers, definitely in command positions, but just generally, and actually last week, I was in one of I was just visiting a police district headquarters and I um, ran into a couple of women officers and it was actually surprising. I didn't realize that I wasn't seeing that very often and I wasn't, I didn't realize that I was missing it. And there is this deputy chief who is very empowered, who, um, you know, is the go-to person for the department, but she's just one person. And then, you know, everybody after her seems to be males or at times even if there's another female in the room the males are leading the conversation so the woman kind of gets lost in the space in my opinion um but i mean in that in that regard like policing is very hyper masculine but it's also very it's a very paramilitary structure you know it's very and which is so different from you know what alicia and i are doing because we're taking this like alternative route in our career you know there's no rules in what we're doing but for the police, there's so many rules, like everything has to go through the chain of command, you know, and, I, you know, I'm not really one to love hierarchies and, you know, understand them even very well. But it's interesting when you, you know, you hear a problem in a police department or a police, a specific district, and then you kind of hear that, like, for it to be solved, it has to be, has to go from a higher, has to come from a higher person, but then also some things are decentralized. So it's just, it's interesting being in a world that's, that um is runs like you know the military to some extent or they actually remind me very often that it runs like the military and i'm like okay well i don't know what that means but hopefully this gets to the right person how do you find mentors in this wall of blue that you're running into i think i mean you know two of our men or my mentors are definitely are my bosses from the policing project so barry and maria so they're outsiders but then within the police department you know, we each department gives us a contact. And for me in both cities, that person has been someone who I've just been developing a closer relationship to. I talk to them frequently. And over time, you know, I think both of my my main contacts in the department have just seen how passionate I am about trying to make their job better and try to, you know, improve their department and make their life easier if they have better relationships with the community. And a lot of it is just listen, even within that hierarchical structure, I find going in listening, being really sympathetic. And then at this point, you know, I've developed a degree of expertise. I think in the beginning when I started as a full-time fellow, kind of would hold my breath for a second walking into really scary meetings with very senior members of the police department or very senior community members or other government agencies. And I was leading these meetings and I didn't necessarily feel like I had the knowledge base or the experience to back it up. But in just a short six or seven months, you know, most people that you just go to your job every day and you do your job day in and day out. But Nani and my full-time job is to think critically about this system. So we do have more expertise in certain ways than people who are a police officer day in and day out because we're looking at departments all across the country and thinking critically about what's working and what's not working. So now that I've had that experience, I can walk into those conversations much more confident and despite my age, despite being an outsider, despite my gender, all those things, I know that what I'm bringing is something that they, that many departments, you know, want. They're, we have more people seeking us out as clients than we can handle work-wise. So we're basically, you know, starting to try to filter even what projects we're taking because of that. 
And for me, as for mentors, I don't think I have any specific police officer mentors yet, although I would really hope to have some by the end of my fellowship year. Um, I have mentors, like Alicia said, Barry and Marie are definitely people I look up to, and they are my mentors in many ways, as well as my Cleveland team. Um, I work with the Monitor, and he has a whole team of people, and they're all they're from all different um, disciplinaries and they've all been in policing for a long time and they have such great insight. And I hope that as I continue my career, I'll always have them as a contact to learn from them and to, you know, tackle how to save the world with them. And like Alicia also said, you know, as we've built our expertise, it definitely gives us so much more legitimacy. Um, being able to talk to departments and say, well, you know, they actually tried that in Las Vegas and it went really well. Like, here's this report it's on page seven. It goes through exactly why it went so well. And I, I think, I mean, un, and I guess intentionally and unintentionally, I, I know a lot about what's going on around the country. I'm up to date with recent policing news. And also I'm aware of the law. So when I'm talking to people who initially I might feel a little bit inferior talking to them, you know, as I just go over how various departments have conducted what this department is trying to do, they look at me like, wow, like that's amazing. I love to learn more. Um, one thing that I'm working on specifically right now is measuring how, how do you measure positive community interactions for individual officers because just in background in order, in order to promote anything you have to measure it and you have to incentivize it and so I've been talking to some commanders about that challenge and how they really want to do that because that's how they're going to get their patrol officers to really focus on that you know right now they measure arrests and stops and other very those are very important things but you incentivize what you measure and so as I was talking to one of them recently I was discussing how other departments have done that and he was you know really enthusiastic and gave me his card and wants me to email him with reports and other information so like Alicia said being an expert in this space definitely balances you know being a woman being young being a lawyer if that's a detriment by by (laughs) among a bunch of uh, police officers being a lawyer isn't necessarily uh, the top of the food chain no definitely this is a, it's such a cool conversation when I think about uh, the kind of world changing that you're doing. This is really topical, really relevant. I'm wondering also, given the fact that there's administration uh, transition uh, from the president on down, what are you thinking about? What are you worried about on that front? Well, one thing I'm worried about is maybe the tone of the country changing in some ways, but that's something that will just have to happen. And, you know, if an incident occurs, we'll see how that is discussed on the national national level. But on the other hand, I think that it empowers a lot of police departments who want to improve relations to do it and to not have a mandate from the federal government. Because policing is a local, it's a local issue anyway. There is no federal oversight of how police um, agencies engage in, with their communities or just interact with their communities. There is, um, the DOJ has authority to sue police departments who have a pattern of practice of violating rights, but that happened quite a bit in this past administration. Maybe there were five cases, but you know, that's, there's over 18,000 police agencies. So if only five have been reprimanded by the Department of Justice, there's a lot of people who are just functioning the way they want to. So what we found with the policing project is that a lot of police chiefs, some of them in progressive districts, some of them in moderate districts, you know, want to improve relations. It's 
safer for the officer. It's safer for community members. It solves more crimes. It's just better. Officers don't want to be out there feeling like people hate them. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to say we are anti the community when our job is to, you know, work with them. It's kind of like in your job, if you took a firm stance against listening to student input, you'd have to kind of have a mean face on all the time. Like it wouldn't be happy. It would be exhausting. Yeah, it would be exhausting. And, you know, if your whole your job is being out on the street all day, you want people to smile at you, you want to be happy. So, I mean, to me, it seems like, come on, like we should be looking at how to make this better. And there are, are a lot of police chiefs with the Policing Project's guidance realizing that that is such a great solution to a lot of the problems going on. Um, I mean, for example, if an incident were to happen in the police um, district that has been working to resolve community relations, people would respond differently. They would know that, that their police department cares about them. They don't see it as a constant issue that is just going to be swept under the rug just as usual. So I think there's a lot of benefit to our work. And, you know, nobody, honestly, I've heard so many officers say, I don't want to be the next Ferguson. I don't want to be the next this. Like, you, you don't want to be that. So there is an intense desire to figure out why, you know, people get upset when they do get up, when incidents do happen, why they lead to massive riots, because not everything has to lead to a riot. I mean, people will protest. It's your constitutional right. But the anger and the, and the pain is a different reaction. Yeah, I agree with Nani. I think that there's uh, a lot of progressive chiefs that now know that, you know, they really want to get this right. They're trying everything they can. And this is really uncharted territory. I mean, a lot of the community engagement work we do, police departments have never really tried to do anything like this. So, you know, there's no there's no game plan. It's it's trying new things. And and we're lucky to work with a lot of departments that are willing to, you know, let us experiment and try different ways to reach the community and build those relationships. But I think the concern is that, you know, there are some chiefs or some departments, it's 18,000, over 18,000 police departments. It's actually crazy. It's kind of impossible to count how many police departments there are in this country. And there are some that are less progressive and where relationships are really bad, but you don't have those chiefs that are thinking critically about how to make it better. And so I think the concern in the current climate is if you, we, we were moving in a direction where there was kind of seemed to be national consensus or at least driven by the administration that we need to repair and improve and progress. And you know, if the new administration thinks a little differently about some of those issues, it's not the chiefs that would reach out to us. It's kind of the chiefs that wouldn't. And you just wonder what's going on in those places. Yeah, there might be a huge middle. Like, it seems like the, the departments that aren't so focused on this will just kind of, you know, get worse. And the departments that are focused will improve and people will want to live there. <laughs> I love that you said that um, we incentivize what we focus on. There was a story last year that I saw about, I can't remember the, the community now, um, cops who saw a young man walking back and forth to work every day. And they could have made his life miserable. They actually stopped him a couple of times and they ended up buying him a bicycle so that he could get to work uh, more efficiently. And I I made a point of posting that on my Facebook and made a point of like kind of shedding a little bit of light on that because those are the kinds of stories that I'd love to hear more about. Our news uh, broadcasts tend to be about the negative stuff. And it sounds like you're working with communities where they really are making a huge effort. Yeah, I mean, that's like exactly what problem-oriented policing is, you know, solving a problem that an individual in your community has. And 
I'm not even sure how that officer got the bike, but you know, if you have positive community relations, officers have the ability to you know go to the local bike shop or go to you know any place that might be selling bikes and get free bikes to be honest and it's just you know using the networks that you have and using the connections that you have and your partners in your community to collaborate to solve issues without moving into strict law enforcement and I think part of it too is that you know there's it's the situation some places have deteriorated so it's like an us versus them mentality in policing but when you really start changing the attitudes about policing and their departments where this exists already where it's you know police are view themselves and are trained more to be public servants we've heard from a, like one chief i remember talked about it as you know customer service even the idea that you know you're serving the public not against the public and of course sometimes serving the public and serving public safety means that you are against individual, you know, not against, but you're, you know, going after kind of bad actors in the community, but that doesn't mean that you're against the entire community. You're, you're serving the community's best interest and and you have that mindset in how you're doing your job day in and day out. I kind of think that if you're going after bad actors in my community, that you are in fact serving my community. So it's different than saying like, you're against, you know, I'm against the community versus I'm, you know, for the, I'm serving the community. And as part of that, sometimes that will result in me being you know, the bad guy in one person's story. I'm so um, spectacularly proud of the two of you and the kind of work that you're doing. I, I just can't say enough about how cool I think it is. Um, I also think about it with like it was only a few short years ago that you started law school. So what advice would you have given yourself if you have the advantage of looking back and dropping a little note in your own mailbox? What would you tell yourself uh, when you started law school? I think for me, when you're in law school, you know, NYU is amazing. There's so many opportunities. And especially in your first year, you're kind of nervous and you just see all these different things that people are doing. And for me, I, I tried and I was mostly successful to kind of not get caught up in that herd mentality. Law school, there's a ladder and people are climbing that ladder in a certain way. And there's always someone who seems like they're a step ahead of you or, you know, or there's so much going on and you hear what other people are doing. You're like, wait, why didn't I try to join that organization or why you know don't I do this and I tried to stay really true to myself and and was mostly successful although you know it's 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 tough sometimes in the environment but to just really be in touch with myself about what I wanted out of the experience and when things weren't for me they weren't for me and that was okay you know I didn't have to go to the same events or join the same groups as other people and so I think that's definitely advice I'd I'd give my younger self even, you know, in the strongest terms possible. And that that translated even to the decision to take this fellowship. I was supposed to be starting at a law firm and I got offered this fellowship opportunity. Nani and I both did and we had the opportunity to defer our law firm year or our law firm start date. And it was the same thing. It was really just gut checking within myself and thinking, yeah, this is going to delay this one part of my career. And everyone else seems to be like, you know, going ahead with that. But being in touch with myself and this opportunity was really important to me. And even though it was a tough decision to give up what I felt like was starting my career, I knew that this would give me opportunities that I would never get again in my life. And so staying true to yourself, despite what your peers are doing, when everyone is kind of on the same ladder-ish is tough, but worth it. I had a yoga teacher tell me one time, there was a really, really amazing contortionist guy on the mat in front of me. And I just was so taken by that. And I just kept staring at that guy. And I all of a sudden felt the yoga teacher walk by and she put her hand on the top of my head and she said, Jeannie, stay on your own mat. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that's probably really good advice. 
It's like, stay on your own mat. Yep. This is your path. You get to do this. Uh, it doesn't matter what kind of contortions are going on all around you in competition. Stay on your own mat. That's a good, it's so knowing yourself and knowing your own path sounds like a good, good bit of advice to give to your former self. Nani, what about you? Um, for me, um, I'd actually will like to repeat the advice that a friend who was a year older at NYU Law told me. And it actually is very similar to stay on your own map. But she said to stay in your own lane. And she just kind of meant like people are going to be speeding past you, going around you, but just, you know, focus on doing what you want to do and like just do that, um, especially around finals. And I think that also transfers to something else that I was thinking, which was while you're in your lane, like, I guess, be flexible in your lane. Like there's going to be so many opportunities. And as most interesting lawyers have told us, there's been many interesting paths to everywhere you've been. I mean, even in your awesome job, Jeannie, you, there is no way to get there. And so many jobs are created for people. So I think just being flexible and not focusing too much on, you know, the louder that Alicia was talking about. It has to be a certain way is exactly the opposite of what you need to be looking at. Yeah, exactly. Thank you both for coming in here and sharing your experiences with our listeners. Thank I you think for you'll Thank yeah. You so I think it's really exciting to think about you guys doing this work. Thank you so much. For more information about the Women's Leadership Network at NYU School of Law and to access more episodes in this series, please visit us online at law.nyu.edu/womensleadership. Thank you.